let's get into the Word of God today. Hopefully you have your Bibles. We're going to continue on in our series in the book of Nehemiah. And today we're going to talk all about what it means to walk in the fear of God. All right, the fear of God. Is this a phrase that you guys have heard before? Have you ever heard the fact that as a follower of God, we are to fear God? You guys ever heard that before? Fear the Lord? So we see this phrase and this concept and idea uh, show up uh, all over Scripture. Proverbs talks about how the beginning of knowledge and wisdom starts at the fear of the Lord. Meaning that if you want to have any knowledge that's worth something, any wisdom, uh, then it has to start with the foundational understanding of what does it mean to fear God? Uh, What does it mean to live and walk in the fear of the Lord? And so this is what we're going to be talking about. This will be the the focus uh, subject today. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, fear is something that we all experience, right? And I want you to think about just for a moment. Think about some things in your life that you've been afraid of. Does anyone have any like specific fears? You're like, yeah, I'm just terrified of snakes or I'm afraid of, what, what, what do you got? Clowns. clowns, right? You're just like terrified of clowns. Aaliyah, you got something? Bounce houses. Bounce houses. We got, man, we're like, this is a party theme so far. Right? Bounce houses, clowns, uh, right there, yeah. Needles, right? So we, we have fears. Fears are a normal thing. And some people have uh, super rational fears where it's like, okay, that makes sense that you would be afraid uh, of that thing. Uh, and some people have irrational fears. I won't mention anyone uh, that shared anything, right? But growing up, I'm sure you guys had certain things, whether it was, you know, you, f- you were freaked out by the dark and so you'd get tucked in at night and your mom would be, oh, keep, you know, you, you would yell out, keep the light on, right? Keep the hall light on. Uh, or maybe it freaked you out to swim at pool, uh, in, in pools at night. I guess these are only things that I experienced when I was a kid, but right? Um, I remember, you know, my dad is super sarcastic and uh, I remember he would tell us, uh, you know, I, I would be kind of like, have you ever swallowed ice? Well, I remember when I was a kid, I'd be like, oh, like I swallowed ice. Like, what's, what's going to happen? My dad would be like, oh, well, now your insides are going to freeze. And he'd mess with me or, you know, you swallowed a sunflower seed. Now, now a, you know, a tree is going to begin to grow. Uh, and, and those are irrational fears, right? It's like, you don't, well, you don't need to be afraid of swallowing ice. You're going to be okay. But in, in a similar vein, there are also things that it is good to have a fear of, right? Not, not necessarily be afraid of. But, but what I would like to call a healthy fear, right? Like for God, we're not to be afraid of God, uh, but we are to have a fear towards him. Now, if you are not his child uh, and you have not been saved and redeemed of your sins, the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God because he is a consuming fire. There, there sh- you actually should be afraid. But if we're his sons and his daughters, do we need to be afraid of God? Certainly not. But we do, according to the Bible, we should, we ought, live in a way that we fear him. For example, some healthy fears that we have in our lives, we should have a healthy fear of heights. We should. Should we be afraid of heights? Well, some of you are, and I can understand that. You get that feeling in your stomach. Uh, But to some extent, we should respect 
the edge of a cliff, right? You go to the Grand Canyon, you might not want to be playing hopscotch right by the edge, okay? Uh, that you should have a healthy fear or, you know, whether it's a healthy fear of the freeway. You probably shouldn't have your soccer game on the freeway. You should have the respect of there's cars. And if I go there, I'll die. Now, do you need to be afraid of the freeway? You know, some people are. I, I have some family members and they're just terrified of the freeway. Like they'll only take streets. Um, and so it's like, you don't need to be afraid, but you got to respect it. When you're driving 65 miles an hour down the road, uh, you got to be focused, right? But you should have a healthy fear. Or, or whether it's uh, knives uh, or, or guns, those aren't toys, right? You don't give them to your little brother to play with. Like there needs to be a, a, a re- do you need to be afraid of a gun? Is it going to get up in the middle of the night and kill you? No. Uh, but, but should you play around with it? No, you should have a respect and a reverence, a fear towards right, firearms, or uh, whether it's a fear of police officers. Should you have to be afraid of them? No. But should you have a respect when they come up to your car? Should you mouth off to them? No. Right? You should have this respect that they are the authority. Uh, or, or maybe your parents in your life. Um, you know, you, we need to have a healthy fear towards them. Now, should you be afraid of them? Well, uh, dad would say he'd want you to be a little bit, but he wouldn't actually want you to be afraid of him. He, he, he wants that, that respect, right? Uh, and sometimes even mom is a little bit scarier than, than dad at times. But, uh, you know, we are to have a healthy fear towards God. And for me, I, I, I think that that picture of, of a dad uh, is, for me, the, the one I associate most with uh, when I think about fearing God. You know, growing up, you know, my, my dad loves the Lord, and I knew, and I've never questioned my dad's love for me. Um, but I remember growing up and hearing, like, well, you're going to wait till your, your dad gets home, right? And there's that, like, there's that fear. Now, did I think my dad was actually going to kill me? It's like, no, I've never had that thought in my life. Uh, but I know that it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of my angry dad, right? And, and not that God is this angry God, and he's upset with everything that we do. Uh, but sometimes we can have our perspective off where we think, well, God is just so loving and gracious, certainly. Uh, but he's also, the Bible describes him as just, do- doing the right thing. The Bible describes God as a judge and a judge that all of us, uh, whether saved or unsaved, we will be before the judgment seat of God. Uh, some will be at the, the, white, the great white throne judgment. That's a place you don't want to be. Uh, but all of us, uh, as believers, we will also come before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, but that one will be for rewards, not punishment. And so as we go into the message today, uh, we're going to see kind of a theme. We're going to see some of the people that are building the wall begin to live in a way that they, that they weren't fearing God. They began to take advantage of people around them. They began to sin against not only God, but their, their, their own people. And what happens is that the the work of God begins to cease. And so on the other side, we're also going to see a good example of Nehemiah uh, who lived a life uh, of fearing God, right? Have you ever heard of the phrase of a a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman? That is someone who lives their life in the awareness and consciousness that God is always watching. You see, if you put out of your mind, well, God doesn't. God's not watching. God's not aware. It it is, then you can do what you want. But if you always are thinking like, no, God's aware. There's nothing that gets by him. There's nothing that's going to be swept under the rug. 
then that's going to affect the way that you live, right? And so we're going to be looking at these things today. So let's read, uh, without further ado, in Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, and we're going to start in verse 1, and, and um, we'll see how far we get, all right? Do you guys have your Bibles? This is what it looks like, Bible, yes? Nehemiah chapter 5, you guys opened? Come on, you guys got to talk to me today. I feel like I'm a lone ranger up here. Yes, you guys there? Okay, there we go. Now, now there's more than one of you. All right, look at verse, verse 1. The Bible says this, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Uh, for there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Verse 3, there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. In verse 4, there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. So they were being taken advantage of, and they were suffering. They weren't able to feed their families. And then in verse 6, Nehemiah says, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. And so I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. And notice there in verse 9. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations of our enemies? And we'll jump down to verse 12. And so they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. And we will do as you say. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and uh, Lord, we want to just give you our attention as we approach your word, Lord. We pray that you would draw us in, that you would teach us from Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, Lord, that we might um, learn from this and apply it to our lives. Lord, we look to you to speak to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, I, I want you to keep in mind that Nehemiah was not just the builder, Okay? Right? He, he wasn't just the master construction uh, man. He wasn't just the uh, focus on building the wall, though that was his first and foremost priority. But we, we find from the book of Nehemiah that he was not just a builder, but he was a governor, which means that he didn't just deal with construction, he dealt with instruction. He dealt with guiding the people of God there in Jerusalem. And as we open up chapter 5... I want you to note down that within all 19 verses, there's no mention of the enemies of God. 
right? For the last couple weeks, as we are in chapter four, we talked all about the outward attacks, right? We talked about discouragement. We talked about um, the, the different methods and tactics that the enemy might have to get us uh, away from doing the work of God. But what's interesting about chapter five is there's no mention of Tobiah, uh, sand ballots, nowhere to be seen. Yet what we find in chapter five is that there's no work of the wall mentioned. And so I want you to note down those two things. There's no enemy to be seen and there's no work to be done. Meaning that what we find is a halt in the building of the wall. And remember, the building of the wall is representative as the work of God. This, is, this was God's focus at the time, uh, and it had ceased. That people no longer were putting brick upon brick and mortar upon uh, mortar, that, they, that they, they paused. So enemies nowhere to be seen, and the work has stopped. But why? What's happening? What's going on? Well, it's not that they're getting attacked, right? We talked about being battle ready. They were, they were battle ready for the attacks of the enemy. But what we find here is an inward attack. And it wasn't the enemy, it was themselves. What we find here is that the inward difficulties proved to be way worse than anything that anyone could have thrown their way. And so what we're introduced to is a problem. Everyone say a problem. Uh, it was a big problem, and it was the problem of the poor. And we kind of read that just a moment ago in the first handful of verses, that there was a problem with the people, uh, and some of them were suffering. Notice there, look in your own Bibles, look at there, verse 1, we see that there was a great outcry. Uh, the idea of an outcry is that there was pain, suffering, and discomfort, and so people began to verbally uh, describe uh, what was going on. It seems that the people ha had gone to Nehemiah and said, this is what's happening. This is not right. And what do we do? And we see his governor side begin to come out a little bit more, not just as uh, the, you know, the construction builder, not just as even the commander of, of the army that he seemed to take in chapter four, but now he's dealing with the people. And so what was the problem? What was the big deal? What was the outcry? Well, notice there, look in your Bibles, look at, we know that it was against their Jewish brethren. So it was against each other. Specifically, it was the poor who had an issue with the rulers and the nobles. And so we see a clash of classes, meaning that there was the, the poor class of people. There was, seemed to be the people with a little bit more money, and they began to clash against each other. Notice there in those first few verses, if you look at verse 2, it says, For there were those who said. Then in verse 3, it says, There were also some who said. Verse 4, There were also those who said, meaning that there was a variety of problems. And if you were to boil all, all of the problem down, it would boil down to the fact that the people did not have, the poor people with less money, did not have enough money to feed their families. They began having to sell their vineyards, their lands. They began even having to enslave their, their sons and their daughters, including themselves. It got bad, and it seemed to go bad quickly. Now, what was happening? What, why was there this problem? Uh, well, I want you to note down, okay, two factors 
uh, of, of kind of what led to this problem. Number one, there was a famine in the land, meaning that there was a food shortage. Uh, the reason being was that there was an increased population uh, on a land that hadn't been used in years. Right? Jerusalem had been laid desolate, that the homes there were broken down, the gates were still burned with fire. It was, it was, it was kind of a disaster. And so now there's all these people in the city, they're working, they're needing to eat, and there was a food shortage for sure. Uh, the second thing is that they, they did experience heavy taxing from the Persian king. That same king that, Nehemiah, that had sent Nehemiah, was, that, was, that was his area, that was his region, and he was uh, definitely taxing them. Uh, but even those two factors, uh, there was still enough to go around. That was not really the big problem. The problem is what we find uh, in, in Nehemiah's response to the people. Look there in verse 7. He says, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Now, if you're like me, if you look at those words, exacting usury, uh, I had no idea what that meant. I was like, they're exacting who? Like, is it like a, are they doing surgery on each other? Like, what's, what's happening? Like, what, what's going on? Well, this word usury, I want you to note down what it means. It means to charge unfair, high interest rates, all right? Meaning that these people, because of the taxes, because of the famine, they, had, they needed some money. And so they, they needed to take out some loans uh, from those who had money. And in that, the people, the ruling and noble class, began to charge extremely high interest rates. You guys know what interest rates are? Um, right? We have this still today. Whether someone takes out a loan for a home, a car, student loans, um, maybe it's a credit card, right? It's to get money in advance, then pay that money back, but now you have to pay a little bit extra. Right, for example, if you maybe ask your sibling for a dollar, they say, well, I'll give you a dollar for the ice cream truck, but um, next week you're going to owe me two bucks. I'm going I'm to charge you 100% interest, and you're gonna now going to, I'll give you one dollar, but then I don't have it, and uh, next week you're going to give me two. Right, that, that's, that's charging interest. But imagine if you ask for a dollar, and then the next week they, they say, hey, they need the payment, and they're like, but now it's, now it's $100. You'd be like, wait, I only borrowed a dollar. Uh, that, would be, that would be unfairly high interest rates. Now, we don't know what the percentage was, but the idea was this, okay? Very simply, they were getting ripped off. Uh, they were getting taken advantage of, but so much to the point that they couldn't feed themselves. It, it, was, it was causing much suffering. And the reason that this was such a big deal uh, was not only because of the suffering of the people, but the ruling and noble class, they were disobeying God. You can note down Exodus chapter 22 and uh, from 25 to 27. It says, if you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. See, all the Jews knew this, that, hey, if there was, if there was an outside, uh, someone who wasn't maybe of the Jewish nation, they would ask for money, then yeah, charge them. Um, and, and charge them interest. But for someone who, you know, is family, and that's kind of how it was for the nation of Israel, hey, don't, don't rip them off. Like, don't take advantage. Don't be greedy, but be gracious. And we see this example follow us into the New Testament, Luke chapter 6, verse 30 and 35, 
we kind of see God's heart displayed, all right? To be gracious and not greedy, right? Think about what Jesus said when he said, give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Jesus even takes it further, right, of graciousness. Then your reward will be from heaven, will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he, God, is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Is this making sense? So this is what was taking place, but it was wrong. And it was wrong because of what God had told them and because of the suffering of the people. But why was this taking place? These are people that are serving God. Think about this. These are people who are are a part of the work of God, building the wall, yet even to the person on the wall next to them, uh, they are taking advantage and exploiting a crisis. And what we see that the heart behind it was ultimately selfishness, right? They they were doing this not to be able to support their families, but that their motivation was selfishness. But really what their motivation should have been was the fear of God. Now, with them treating one another like this, it's clear that they were not walking in the fear of God. Because if they were aware, okay, God, God knows that I'm taking advantage. God knows that I'm exploiting the crisis. Uh, would they have been doing it? The answer is no, right? And so we see that Nehemiah kind of uh, gets involved in the situation, right? He steps in, and what we find next is the solution uh, to the situation, okay? That was the problem. The issue was that people were getting taken advantage of. Uh, and we find that Nehemiah brings the solution. You guys tracking? Yes? Okay. We find there that, look at verse 6. He says, and I became very angry. And so this, this heated, right, Nehemiah. He found out, man, wait, you're serving by, uh, you know, you, we're building the wall, and this is what's happening on the outside? And so out of this anger, he takes some kind of serious thought and he approaches the people and he begins telling them like, yo, what's going on? I doubt he said yo, but he's saying, hey, what's, what's happening? Like what you are doing is not good. And he begins to get to the heart of the problem. And look there in verse nine, verse nine, he says, then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of of our God. And this was his question to him. See, what he associated with how they treated other people, he said, should you not walk in the fear of our God? Meaning that they were not fearing God. They weren't. They had no fear for the Lord. And this is where for you and I, it gets extremely personal for us. And the question that I want to pose to you, and I'm going to pose again to you at the end, is I want you to think about your own life. Now, I don't think any of you have enough money to be loaning money out, and right? Money's not the issue, it's, it's the heart. In our lives, are we living in a way that someone else would be like, he fears God, she fears the Lord? Think about your life, just take a moment. Do you fear God in your life? Are, are there times in your life, right, where maybe there's an opportunity 
for selfishness. There's something, there's something on the horizon and you think, man, I want to do that. But then there's that thought of, but God, I want to honor you. God, I know this is not what you want. And so because of the fear and the honor and the respect, right? That's the idea. It's the reverence. Have you guys heard of that word? That's really a better, a better word because of our English is, is hard. But really we should have a reverence for God. Meaning I respect you too much, God, that I want to do this, but I'm going to choose not to because of the respect I have for you. Are there those moments? You see, for the Christian, uh, it's not that our desire for sin completely goes away. You're like, no, I, I don't des- I, all my desires line up with God. That ain't true. Right? We experience those, those times of, of decisions, but in those decisions, do we say, do we choose, God, I'm thinking about that, that day that I'm going to see you, or I'm, I'm aware of your presence, and so I'm going to not do this, or I'm going to do this. The fear of God in our lives should not only keep us from sin, but it should then also uh, be the motivating factor to put us in the place where God wants us. I want you to note down 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 1. What we find here is that there's a connection that's made. And the connection is that holiness is connected with fearing God. All right, you might want to write that down. Just put holiness, put a little arrow, fearing God. That these things are connected. Meaning our holiness is dependent upon if or if not, we walk in the fear of God. I mean, what, what's the motivating factor? Is it because we want to look good to our parents? Is it because we, like, why do we do what we do? Our ultimate motivation should be that we, we, we respect God too much. We have too much uh, reverence towards him. And we see these things connected. Look at the screen. It says, as he who called you is holy, pure, perfect, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, you, you say that you have a Father in heaven who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. You see, we're never going to be perfectly holy until heaven. But we are to be in a pursuit of holiness. Meaning that our lives should, should reflect Jesus more and more as we follow him. But we see here, and I like that last kind of line, right? Conduct yourselves during your stay here. It's not just like you're on vacation, but it's that there's a, temp, uh, a temporariness to our lives. And while we're here, we're to go about it fearing God. It's been said before that if we fear God, then we won't fear anything else. But if we don't fear God, then we're going to have a fear of almost everything else. And one of the, the things that this subject can produce is kind of like, man, it seems to contradict each other, right? Because you can think about verses like God says, do not be afraid, right? Be strong and courageous. Uh, for this, this, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. So how does the Bible say, do not be afraid, but fear God? Because remember, it's not that you need to be afraid that you're like, 
in, in a way that, oh man, anything, I, I got to step around like on eggshells and, and if I sin against God, he's going to kick me out of heaven. No, no, no. There's this, right? It's kind of, bring it back to that fear of a dad where you're not afraid that dad's going to, you know, leave you on the side of the curb and say, good luck with your life. But you are afraid of the consequences. You're also, honestly, also concerned about, man, disappointing, right? They're like, man, I don't, I don't want to disappoint him. That's sometimes worse than that. You're like, I, dad, just be angry with me. Just don't be disappointed. And for, for our father in heaven, um, that we can think similar in that way. And if we lose that godly reverence, it'll begin to show in our life. You know, for these people, these nobles and these rulers, um, it's interesting to me that they were able to be a part of what God was doing, yet blatantly sin. Do you know what it means to blatantly sin? It means it wasn't an accident, right? It's not like a, a couple decimals were like moved, and so they're like, oh, I didn't realize I was charging 200% interest or whatever it might have been. No, they knew what they were doing, and they did it. And you know, we're, we're going to sin. We're going to mess up. Even if we, man, we seek to fear God in everything we do, we're going to mess up. But what the fear of God does in the life of a believer is that intentional sin that gets less and less. Because you start thinking, no, like, he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. I'm not scared of what he's going to do to me, but I know I'm going to answer to him one day, right? The Bible says that, that, that all of us we're going to give an account of what we've done in our body, whether good or bad. Every motivation is going to be brought up. Now, praise be to Jesus that we don't have to be punished for those, right? There's not going to be like this, like, oh, well, because you weren't that good of Christian, you have a timeout in heaven. No, no, there's going to be nothing like that. Uh, but there is going to be loss, loss of rewards, loss of praise from God. But what does this look like? in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I want you to note it down. It's important. In this discussion about obedience, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Okay? He says, work out. Notice that he doesn't say work for. He doesn't say that uh, that if you fear God, then you're going to be able to work for your salvation and, and you'll really make it to heaven. No. He says work out. The work has already been done for salvation. But you and I now have to work it out. Meaning that we're saved, but now what? Right? Okay. H how do we live a life that's going to make it to heaven and God's going to be able to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant? The thing that will keep us back, the motivating factor is the fear of God. That is our motivating factor. And this looks different for each person, right? And that's why it says work out your own salvation, meaning how this looks in my life might be a little bit different than it looks in your life. But I really think it all comes down to the awareness of God's presence. Because you know what we do uh, when we intentionally sin. And we've all done it where you, the Holy Spirit starts speaking to us. And it can just be simple. It can just be like, we're not a part of that anymore. We don't do that. And you hear his voice, and I can only say this because I've, I've experienced it, and you, you push it out, right? You, 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 you choose to say, I, I, don't, 
nah, and you just kind of, you push his voice away. You push his presence out of your life. And God's never going to force himself, right? And so he's going to be there. He's going to keep speaking. But to live in the fear of God is to allow that voice to continue speaking, to listen, say, okay. And it's a harder way to live, no doubt, but it is good. And we need to realize that everything that we do matters. And it's crucial for us to really kind of fix our thinking about who God is. Because if we begin to meditate on the attributes and characteristics that scripture gives us of how awesome and big God is, then we're not going to have to try to like foster a fear. It's going to become natural supernaturally. That if we begin to fix our thinking that he's not the big man upstairs, he's not our homie in the sky, that the Bible describes him as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, there is no one like him. There is no one to compare him to. And he is aware of everything you do, everything that happens. There is no private moment. He is with you. And that's not, again, to make you afraid, but it should bring that, I want to live for him. It should bring that realization that his relationship means so much more, that the God of the universe wants to speak to me. He cares about the little details of my thought life. Yeah, he does. But do we fear him? Do we think about him in that way? Now, I do want you to note down one more thing before we move on to talking about Nehemiah a little bit in the positive side. But 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for the love of Christ compels us. Okay. And in the New Testament, we need to understand that there is this, this balance um, where that word compel, it means to constrain. It really means to, to, to hold someone down and pull them in. And our motivation uh, is kind of twofold. It's, we have this fear of God, but we have this love for Christ. And it's kind of this, this well, we, and, and they begin to, to blend. They really do. Where it's like, I, I love him so much. I want to live in a way that, that's, that's a God-fearing way. Um, does that, is that making sense? It's kind of that, that dual fold uh, uh, motivation that I, I love him so much. I, I respect him. I, I, I fear him. And so I want to live for him. Okay? Make sense? Now, as we kind of begin, uh, the last thing I kind of want to share with you is looking at Nehemiah. All right? The, obviously, the, the rules and the rulers and the leaders, they, they were a pretty bad example of what it was to, to walk in the fear of God. But we see Nehemiah, uh, he's a pretty good example of what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. And we find some lessons from the leader here. Do you guys know what it means to compare and contrast something? Right, it's to, to take something and, and, and com- compare. Oh my gosh, I just use the same word to explain it. Uh, but for example, if you're trying to learn the meaning of a word, it's beneficial to look at the antonym and the synonyms, right? So to look at what, it, what words it, it does not mean and then what words are similar. And by that kind of contrasting and that comparison, then you can have a greater understanding of what that word means. Does that make sense? Well, for here, 
uh, we kind of see a pretty good comparison when we see the man Nehemiah. And if you look, we, we're not going to read it, but I just want to point out to your attention uh, in verses 14 through 19. Right? We, we read the first 12, 13 verses, uh, but there's another section here that we just, for time's sake, don't have time to get into. But we do find that word, uh, that phrase, the fear of God, once again. This time we find it uh, in a positive sense, talking, uh, it's Nehemiah talking to uh, the readers about his motivations. Look there in verse 15. He says, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. That's a great motto right there. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Did it say I did not want to because of the fear of God? No, it, it's, it's, I did not do so. Well, what did he not do? Well, remember I, I was sharing with you that he's their, he was their governor, right? Well, he was not their first governor. There were many people that came in, in years past, and they always took advantage of the people. They increased the taxes. They lived in luxury. They kind of took advantage of their position. Well, Nehemiah, the Bible tells us in these last handful of verses that he never took a salary. He never took any money from them, that he was supported, right? Uh, he supported himself. He was supported by the king, but he never took advantage of his position. Why didn't he do it? It wasn't because he doesn't like money. It wasn't because he, he prefers, uh, you know, a lesser way of living. But he says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. Man, if you can just get this into your heart right now, I believe this is exactly what God wants to speak about us today. Why do we do it? Why, why do we live for him? Why do we do this or do that? The motivation ought to be the fear of the Lord. Make sense? Now, quickly, in kind of light of, of Nehemiah being this God-fearing man, there, there's two kind of ways we see this kind of act out. There, there's two ways in this chapter, not just by not taking the salary, but what we had just read, uh, we, we kind of see, get that little insight. And how did he handle things? Like, what does it mean uh, to, to walk in, and live in that way? Well, I want you to notice, look how Nehemiah handled his anger. Look how he handled his anger. Look back at verse 16. He says, and I became very angry. Remember, we read that just a moment ago. He says, I became very angry. And many people would say uh, that anger is a sin. But I want to tell you that Scripture does not teach that anger is a sin. Did you guys know that? To be angry is not a sin. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Not like you should be angry, but if there is something that makes you angry, that's okay, right? That's an, did you know that anger is an emotion at first, right? It might be, it might be an emotion at first, but oftentimes that, what that can turn, turn into, that becomes sin, right? The Bible describes that God is slow to anger. You know, God is angry every day, the Bible says. You ever think about God in that way? He's angry with the wicked every day, according to the Bible, now, does that mean God's sinning? No, because his anger is something described as a righteous or justified anger. And he is slow to anger. Meaning that if we are quick to anger, maybe for some of you, you have a quick temper, 
Like you can go from zero to 100 and lash out in a moment's time. Uh, that's sin, right? That's where the anger now is no longer under the control of the Holy Spirit, but it becomes uncontrolled. Proverbs 16, 23 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Describing to us that, you know, it's one thing to be angry. It's another thing to be hot-tempered. And we know God is slow to anger. And so you're like, well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, to be a God-fearing man or woman is to be able to hander, hand, handle, hander, handle your anger correctly. The Bible describes that we are to give place to our wrath. And so if we are continually angry about things, then there's an issue there. We're to give place, and the place is to give our anger to God, that he is the one who takes vengeance. But should there be things that cause us to be angry? Yeah. You know, things that are wrong. It's okay to be angry about them. Now, what do you do with that anger? That, that's, that's what will determine whether you're living in a way that's God-fearing or not. David Guzik Bible commentator, he says that Nehemiah was passionate enough to get angry, so he actually cared. Sometimes it's even a good thing, but wise enough not to act until he had considered the matter carefully, right? It says after some serious thought, then he went and approached the uh, rulers, okay? So this is important that our anger should be, shouldn't be out of control, but under control. Make sense? Questions on that? All right, the second thing I just want you to look at, and then we'll close, is I want you to look how Nehemiah handled confrontation. Because this really also is a display of how he lived a life of, in, a, in a God-fearing way. Now listen, s- some people might, but most people don't like confrontation. Right? We oftentimes in our life will do anything just to avoid confrontation with people. Uh, avoid any kind of conflict. And, and, and so we'll, we'll kind of take the easy route. And, it, and it's harder. It's harder to confront something. But at times, right, fearing God is not just about not doing some things, but it is about doing some things. That I have such a, a respect towards you, God, that I know this is what you're asking me to do. And I'm, I'm, I'll do it. You don't have to like it. don't have to love it. But if you're a God-fearing man or woman, then you will do. And we see for Nehemiah, he didn't just let this one slide. He could have stepped back and been like, ah, this is like a money problem. I'm just here to build the wall. So I'll just kind of stand back and let them duke it out and figure it out. He didn't go and begin talking, you know, whispering and gossiping. No, right away, the Bible says that he rebuked them to their face. He rebukes them and he says what's needed. He says the truth. Right? He's not necessarily mean about it, but he is pretty blunt. He's forthright. And I love, though, how their response was good. Right? Look, look there back at verse 12. He says, we, it says, so they said, we will restore and will require nothing from them and will do as you say. I, I have found that one of the things that keeps us back from confronting someone when we know they're doing something wrong and it's hurting other people, right? that's the big thing. That's when we actually really have to step up is we have to confront when someone else's sin is affecting someone else and God allows you to see it. But oftentimes we think we, we play, uh, 
you know, what ifs in our head. Do you guys play the what if game? We all do. All right, well, I'm going to come to them and then they're going to like call me like a holy roller. I'm going to come to them and they're going to think I'm, uh, you know, judgmental. I'm going to come to them and they're going to call me a sin sniffer. I'm going to come to them and they're going to react really bad. They're going to hate me and block them out of their life and unfollow me on social media and tell people bad things. And we, and we, we build up these things in our head when God says, talk to them. God says, confront them. God says, go, tell them the truth. And we see for their reaction, it was good. They responded. And we see now in chapter six that they get back to the work. They get back, the problem and the solution was solved, that they gave them their land back. They no longer were abusing them. And now God's work was able to flourish. And it's in that type of setting that if we would live lives that would be mindful of the presence and awareness of God, that God's going to be able to do his work. Lives will be changed and the kingdom of God will be built. So there's no no better way than to end on Jesus, right? The Bible describes that the whole uh, volume of the book is written of him. And Jesus is that perfect example of what it was like to live a life of living in the fear of God, right? He followed what the Father had asked him. He he obeyed. He listened. He was for the people, right? Did Jesus ever take advantage of his position? No, he didn't. The Bible says that he came to serve and not to be served. And uh, interestingly enough, just about 450 years later, Jesus would be in this same city that Nehemiah was building. And Jesus would actually experience anger similar to Nehemiah. There were people 450 years later during the time of Jesus taking advantage of those who were less fortunate. And this time, it wasn't about outside loans, but it was directly in the temple of God that people were selling animals for other people to worship God at abnormally high rates. They were exacting usury. Jesus finds out about it, and the Bible describes that he found some rope and began to make a cord of whips. And the Bible says that he goes into the temple and he's angry and he begins to flip tables, tell people to get out, and he begins to whip people. It's a, it's a very graphic picture. But why? It's because he feared God and he was able to handle his anger correctly. Now, does that mean we should make a whip and begin, begin well, I like to think that as soon as we can walk on water like Jesus, then uh, we can begin doing those things. Oftentimes, right, we have to give place to our wrath because we simply oftentimes can't handle it. And Jesus, though, was that perfect example. And so may may our motivation be the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. And out of that, that he would have absolute control of, of every area of our life. And so I want to take a few minutes. You can hit the lights. Uh, no, you can hit number four. And um, I want you guys just to, to sit and think. Okay? I want you guys to close your eyes. We'll worship in just a moment. So everyone's still. Anything you're playing with or messing around, just put your notes, Bible on your lap. I just want you to have a moment before the Lord. Close your eyes. No one should be looking at me.
and just check in with him. Just check in with him. You're like, what do you mean check in with him? Talk to him. And I want you to ask him is if your life would be described as walking in the fear of God. If someone had a picture of a week in your life, a week in the life of put your name in, whether you were alone, whether you were with people, would they describe your life as, oh man, she fears God. He fears God. He does the right thing when it's hard. He doesn't do the the wrong thing when it's easy. Would your life be described in that way? Maybe you're not exacting usury from people, but are you taking, is your motivation your own selfishness? Or do you live a life that pleases God? Just ask him, take a moment. Whatever that answer may be, I want you to, to ask him to put in you the fear of God. That, that you would ask him to, to strengthen you in this area, that, that you would be aware. Often I found it so, we can, we can be so forgetful, right, of the presence of God. So easy to go a day without really even thinking about him. It's easy. We get busy going with school. We get going with whatever. And so ask him to place in your own heart the awareness of his presence. He's always there, but are you aware of it? Ask him. Ask him to do that in you. Lord, we do just take this moment and just want to acknowledge your place and position in our lives. Lord, that you are our king. You are our Lord. There's no one greater than you. There's no one that even comes close. There's no one to compare you to. And Lord, you are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our obedience. You are worthy of our attention And so, Lord, we know, we confess our irreverence towards you at times, our lack of fear, our our lack of respect, that we can live our lives flippantly at times, loose, just not thinking, forgetful. Lord, but we want to live lives not of forgetfulness, but of God-fearingness. Lord, we want to please you, Lord, we want to live for you and we pray that you would put in us the awareness of your presence, that you are omnipresent. You are not only in us, but you are around us. There's nothing that gets past you. There's nothing that you will sweep under the rug and